Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yordana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Kaf Aleph, page 21. Today is the day, our siyum of Masachet Shkalim is this this afternoon, this morning, depending on your time zone. Um, we hope to see you there. We would like you to join us. Don't forget, we have a special guest speaker, Dr. Michal Osband. He is an archaeologist. He's also Yordana's brother, so we have good access. He's going to be speaking about Machatzita Shekel, as you might have guessed. Um, and we, again, look forward always to seeing your lovely faces of our co-learners. Um, and, and I should mention, I guess, really, right, the last off is really tomorrow, right? This Kavalaf is not the last off. Kavbet is the last off 22. But Sunday is just the more convenient day. You understand this. We do this every single time so far. May they continue to fall out this way next to Sundays. Okay. That said, let's jump in. Our daf really rounds out Perak Shvi'i, the seventh Perak, and it begins Perak Shmini, the eighth Perak. And the eighth Perak, of course, is the last Perak. What I find interesting here is that the eighth Perak delves into topics of Tumantara, right? Ritual purity and impurity, as we've discussed in other Masechtot, and we haven't really focused on it in Shkalem so far. And it feels to me like, not to go so far as to say it's a prerequisite that there must be a discussion of Tumantara, but it kind of feels a little bit like we're checking the box. On the other hand, it also really does line up with the topics and themes and ideas and issues that we have been discussing even in the seventh parak, meaning when we're talking about the status of something uh, that is unknown and what can you assume about your populations and what the implications of that might be. So I'm going to start now on the beginning of, it's not the very top of the day, parak Shmini, the eighth parak, um, Halacha Aleph. Kol harukin, right? Rukin means those who spit. So this is quite graphic. Um, a little bit entertaining, the idea that, you know, how, how many times did I see, at least in my childhood, I don't think I've seen anything of late that says, you know, no spitting. And I kind of feel like, but who's spitting? Well, in the Mishnah, the time of the Mishnah, apparently people were spitting. Kol harukin torin. All the spit, any spit that would be found, you know, on the sidewalk, on the, I don't know, anywhere, right? Anywhere in Jerusalem was considered tahor. It was considered ritually pure because impure people were not really found in Jerusalem. And non-Jews whose spit was considered impure were also not particularly found in Jerusalem. Except for the one exception was this upper marketplace where indeed there would be non-Jews there, I guess, hawking their wares, doing business. And that's maybe where the ritually impure Jews were going to be, you know, again, carrying on the regular day. But anything that is connected to the temple, people had to be pure, right? So the presumptions here, the assumptions that could be made about the population in Jerusalem is really, I believe, dramatically different from those connected to elsewhere. Of course, that's Rabbi Meir's opinion. Now we've got Rabbi Yossi's opinion. Rabbi Yossi and all the other days of the year, meaning not the holidays, not Pesach, not Shavuot, not Sukkot, then if you would find spit in the middle, the emtza, in the middle of the street, you consider it impure, tmein. But if you found it on the sides, that would be where you could consider it pure. Meaning, I believe the presumption here is that anybody who is um, pure would be making sure to stick to the sides of the road so that they would not bump into anybody or anything that might be impure. And the people who are impure would make sure that they stuck to the middle so as not to bump into the people who are pure on the side. So really, we have two mentara governing, you know, daily conduct, daily walks, for that matter, right, in a way that 
you know, it's really a very powerful day-to-day kind of thing, which we don't always think about. Okay, and then what about those holidays? The opposite, because once you're talking about the holidays and everybody's coming to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem to be pure and come and offer sacrifices and so on, then they're going to be pure and they're going to be also, I assume, take up a lot of space walking down the middle of the road, in which case then you end up with the Tmein, the people who are impure, sticking to the sides. Again, the idea being that nobody really wants to bump into each other and risk rendering the people who are pure, impure. Okay? And then we have Either way, the general rule is that the, the smaller percentage of the population ends up on the sides, and the larger percentage is walking down the middle of the road. Granted, this is in a time when there was not traffic in the way that there is today, there are no automobiles, any kind of transport by, I don't know what, horse, donkey, camel, I don't know, even a wagon is going to be a, a much slower pace to the extent that anybody who is walking down the middle of the road is not really at great risk of being trampled. The mission goes on. So I feel like we've discussed this before, but this assumption that if you found Kalim on the way to the mikvah, right, going down to the mikvah, where you go to dunk your vessels in the mikvah to make sure that they are, I guess, that they're rendered uh, pure, right? So if you find them on the way down, then they are considered, you can make the assumption that they are Tameh. But if you find them on the way up, and there really were different sides of the stairs to be considered going down or going up, it's not the automatic, well, stairs go both ways, um, then you would say that they are Tahur. You could assume that they would be Tahur because that's after, the, the assumption is, again, that's after they've been dunked. That is all Rabbi Mayer's opinion. But Rabbi Yossi says as follows, Rabbi Yossi Omer, any kalim, any vessels that you find near the mikvah, on the stairs of the mikvah, you can consider them pure. Anything, any kli, any vessel that is um, around the mikvah, you can consider it pure, except for the things that are specifically used for graves, right, or to gather up the bones of the dead, because those are going to be impure, because hello, they're coming in contact with a dead body. But the presumption he says is, you know, the moment that you're dealing with the mikvah, then you've got pure, you've got pure vessels. Um, okay, the mission, this mission actually continues quite a bit. I think that we're going to pause here because both in the interest of time and also because it's like it's almost, I would say, it's as if it's a new mishnah because it's a whole new topic about, you know, slaughtering with a knife that's found. What day is it? it Carbon Pesach, right? Now, this brings right. us back to Pesach. To be fair, nice, we actually did but talk it's about kind of this further exact scenario from... in Pesach. Yeah, so I'll pick up here with the second um, halacha. And there's a really interesting, again, it's continuing with Tumantara, but here it's really speaking specifically about the parocha. Parocha shenita mate, but Vlad had too much. So if you have the parocha, now remember, the parocha was, you know, the curtains uh, that was in the... Um, that was in the Beit HaMikdash. Um, it's one of the curtains that was there. Um, and there really, there was basically no wall, but, you know, between sort of the, where the Mizbeach was, like that holy area, and then the Kaddish Kedoshim, like the Holy of Holies. And there were curtains there that basically would separate those walls. We're going to learn more about this actually in uh, Masechet Yoma. There were other curtains in other places as well, but we're talking about this specific parochet uh, that separated those two areas. Um, and so let's say it got somehow became tummy with a Vlad Hatuma, you know, with a, you know, what we talk about those derived uh, Tumas, right? Not the Av, not the Avot Hatuma, um, but um, 
and we've uh, discussed that before. Um, but you know, uh, you know, we would say, uh, you know, something that touched one of the avod hatuma, and then it touches this, right? So makfilino um, you would actually immerse it in the mikvah that was actually in the temple courtyard itself. And then they could bring it back in immediately. In other words, they uh, usually you would have to wait until nightfall. Um, but here, uh, because this is actually a type of not to erase a tuma, but rabbinical tuma, the concept of the Vlad Hatuma. So that's why they could re-enter it into the temple area right away and that and separate it, those two that separated the holy from the holy of holies. Um, that's why you didn't have to wait until um, nightfall. Right, but it becomes tummy with an avatuma, which is a biblical source of tuma. Uh, you would have to immerse it outside of the courtyard itself. And then they would spread it out in the chayl. So the chayl was an area that was even outside of the azara itself or even the woman's section itself. Um, and even somebody who was tummy with biblical tuma was allowed to be in that area. Because if it's biblical tuma, it actually requires that you need sundown to help happen before you could move it back in. Let's say it was a new parochet. So then they would spread it out on the roof of the uh, of this like portico, basically that covered the bench um, in the temple. So that everybody could see this handiwork and how beautiful it was. So I thought this was a beautiful piece of the Mishnah because normally the parochet was really not seen by anybody. You had this beautiful embroidery, and the Gemara even discusses, and I'll talk about that in a little bit later, how beautiful the embroidery was. Um, you know what? I guess I'll talk about it now, right? Like there's a lot of discussion in the Gemara piece. First of all, how many threads <laughs> were there? And there's all different opinions. Was it 24? Was it 36? Is it 48? Um, the fact that, and one thing to remember is, is that the threading itself was actually shotness, right? It was a combination of four different types of materials, including wool and linen together um, and, you know, and of different colors. Um, and so I, I pictured it having sort of this like beautiful iridescent quality to it. And there's even a discussion, what was the picture on it? Was, a, was it a lion on one side, nothing on the other side? Was it lion and lion on both sides? Was it a lion on one side and an eagle on the other side? Again, all of these are things that are what's discussed in the... Um, Gamar itself. So when you had a new, yeah. The other thing, Yadina, Yadina, the other thing I think that we always need to keep in mind is that because we're so used to colors in our clothing, in our everything, just as a given, right? But bright colors were not a given in people's lives then. So then if you see like, you know, beautiful purple and blue and scarlet and like, it's just a, and gold, of course, it's a completely different right. kind of sight like to behold because, whoa, look at those colors. And took a lot of work. So when you had a new parochas, um, you know, when they, uh, they would take it, they would, you know, tovel it before they would hang it. They would lay it out to dry in this way, in this area that could be seen all throughout Yerushalayim. So everybody could, you know, see how beautiful it was. And some commentators say this also would sort of motivate people to continue to donate to it. And now the mission is going to describe a little bit more about the parochet. So Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel would say in the name of Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Shimon, the, who was the son of the Skan Kohen Gadol, right? So it was as thick as a tefach. And it was woven on 72 heddle shafts. I don't know much about weaving, but 
this apparently is, I think, to tell you how complicated of a piece, <laughs> complex of a piece of work it was. Each and every thread contained 24 strands. Again, the Gemara is going to quote some other braces that say maybe it was not 24, but 36 or 48. Our our um, arka its length was 40 amot. its width was 20. And it was made from uh, basically spending 820 gold dinars. And they made, right, two each and every year. Um, so it's interesting that they sort of were replaced all the time, right? I don't think we see that anything else is replaced um, uh, as uh, frequently. Um, and the reason for that is, if you think about it, is that you have the Mizbeach on one side, so the parochet actually would get blackened and it would get very dirty from all of the smoke. So that's why it would need to be replaced so frequently. Ushlosh matilin ota, and 300 kohanim would need to immerse it in the mikvah. So just to conclude with this, you know, again, I, I mentioned sort of what the general discussion is of the Gemara. I think it's interesting that the number of strands is subject to a machlokas, right? The Tanaitic literature is not that far away from when uh, the Beit HaMikdash actually stood and the parocha was made, you know, just a couple hundred of years if. And it's interesting to see that even that Misora is a source of machlokas, that somehow what that was and how it was made was lost so quickly. Um, but at the end here, there's just this interesting discussion uh, where it says, you know, um, uh, you know, that it took 300 Kohanim if they needed to take it to the mikvah. Rabbi Yitzchak Barbizna b'shem Shmuel Guzma. So Rabbi Yitzchak Barbizna says the name Shmuel, this is an exaggeration, right? Like, in other words, we're using the expression of 300 just to say that it's 300, but it's not really, it didn't really take 300 uh, people. Because when you do read it, it seems like that's like a lot of effort, you know, to 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 have to take it to a mikvah. Um, and then they're going to sort of, you know, then they say, you know, show another Mishnah, Taman Tinanin, right? We learned in another Mishnah, and this is talking about how many ashes were on top of the Mizbeach. Pamaim haya aleha kishlosh me'ot kor, right? At times there were 300 core of ashes on it. Rabbi Yossi bar Rabbi Boon, B'Shem Shmuel, again says, Guzma, this is an exaggeration. So it seems to be that this number 300, you know, it's like today we would say it was a thousand. Um, this seems to be sort of the expression of exaggeration. Like if you want to say there was a lot of something, you would use the terminology of 300. Um, but, you know, clearly this was a. Which, by the way, is just right, interesting because I always think it's 400. Right. I know. I... Right. Oh, um, I understand. But, you know, I, yes, I'm not. A beautiful yes. piece of artwork. We see that in the discussion of the Gemara itself. Um, and I think something that they took a lot of pride of. But again, interesting that it was primarily something that was very hidden away. Um, it was not seen regularly other than by the Kohanim themselves. And so the opportunity, you know, twice a year to sort of show it off to everybody when a new one was when, when new ones were created, um, I think is, again, a way of sort of, you know, including everybody into the, um, uh, you know, into the workings of the temple itself. I just want to make one comment. And I, I meant to say it before about what you talked about, Anne, and then we'll wrap up. Um, you know, this whole thing with the spittle and like how people walked around Yerushalayim, you know, it again drove on the, to me, how much Tumantara was part of everyday life and particularly in Yerushalayim. Like, we just don't think about these things. And again, I don't always like to relate things to COVID, but you know, today we are living in a time where we're very careful how close we get to people. We need to be separate from people. 
but you know what? That was part of your day-to-day life in Yerushalayim. Like people had to really separate themselves. If you were Tameh, you really needed to make sure not to get close to other people who were Tahor because it could sort of ruin their whole trip or like why they were in Yerushalayim. Um, and it had real consequence, you know, if you touch something and then all of a sudden you found yourself in a scenario where you were Tahor, excuse me, Tameh, and you needed to get something done. You need to bring a Korban. You had to get to the Beit HaMikdash. I'm not even talking about just about Kohanim you know, even just, you know, the regular Yisrael. And, you know, you sort of can picture in your mind, I always sort of picture Yerushalayim as this place where everybody came together. But this Mishnah drove home that there was a little bit of separation between people, that you did have to really be aware of your surroundings to make sure that you accidentally did not become tummy. Yeah, maybe. Well, maybe that's two our meters apart. for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. <laughs> Rabbi e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.